As we come to chapter 4, we've just come off of chapter 3 last week, and we saw that Moses responded to the call from the burning bush with two doubts, two questions. His first question was, who are you? Who are you? That uh, you're calling me to this great task. Who are you? Reveal yourself. What is your name? And then we saw his second question. His second doubt is, who am I that I should do such a great task? And so many times in our Christian lives, we make faith something that is very complicated. And when I say that, that we make faith something that is complicated, I do not mean that circumstances are not complicated. They certainly are, aren't they? Are circumstances of life? Life itself, when we say that we make faith something that that is complicated, we are not meaning that life itself is not complicated nor that the decisions that we're called to make in this life are not complicated. The health issues that we discover from the doctor, they are complicated. I mean, the list goes on and on and on because we are a broken people because of the fall, living in a broken world. But what I am saying this morning is that these immediate complications that we have that come before us in our lives should not complicate the essence of faith in our hearts. In other words, there is nothing complicated about God's promises that He will be at work in our lives and will complete that work that He started. Is there anything complicated about the sentence of the promise of God, faithful is he who called you who also will do it? Is that a complicated sentence for anyone to understand? Or the one who has started the good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. Is is anything unintelligible in that sentence? So it is not faith that is complicated, It is what surrounds us in the midst of those promises of God that is complicated. Life is complex. And more than that, what makes things even more complicated in our lives is that we also deal not only with circumstances, but with our perceptions of how God's promises will come about in our lives. So we immediately have an outward complication of the things we deal with in life, and we also have an inward complication that we try to perceive how God's promises can actually find fulfillment in light of what we see around us. Hence, we find it hard to place our faith in God. In fact, that's one reason that Jesus, he presents a little child in the midst of his disciples and he says, look at this child, unless one has faith like this child, he shall in no wise, he will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Because faith is a childlike trust. And as we come to the book of Exodus, we've already seen again in chapter 3, that the last thing, I mean, the very last thing, I mean, are you like, how many of you like to make a to-do list? I mean, Rachel, she likes to make a to-do list of things she's already done, so just so she can have check marks. <laughs> um, I just like to have a conceptual list so that I don't get too discouraged. But how many of you, if you how many of you make a to-do list? How many of you like to put the easier stuff on the front of the to-do list, on the top? How many of you like to put the harder stuff on the top? Okay, I see two hands. Well, most of us, 
if we are really dreading something, I mean, that thing is going on the bottom of the list. And the very last thing that Moses wants to do is to answer this call from God. The very last thing he wants to do. Why? Because as we have seen from chapter 3 with Moses' doubts, there are just too many complications that stand in the way of him carrying out God's will. Yet as we've also seen from chapter 3, with each doubt, we have God's gentle response. And each time, God gives a response that I will be with you. I will strengthen you. I will do the work, but I am going to use you to carry out the work. And as God responds with assurances of faith, the question now stands, as we have left it in chapter 3, Will Moses obey or will he not? I mean, imagine if you're very familiar with this story. Imagine stopping at the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, and God again is promising what will happen, that God will deliver his people. And we're left wondering, okay. Moses has had two strikes already. He's, he's responded to God's call with two doubts. Now what's going to happen? Is he finally going to obey? And this same type of doubt and unbelief that Moses struggled with, so do we. So this morning, the title that I have given to chapter 4, that is also a question that we're going to ask one another this morning, is this simple question, will you believe? Will I believe? Believe enough, not in, in myself, not in yourself. Believe enough, not that the circumstances are all conducive to following God's plan, but to believe in the God who has called us to be able to step out in faith. What are you needing to place your faith in God more this morning? What has God been calling you to in your life that you have not yet stepped out in faith? Looking to more than just a promise to the future. But we look to Christ, the promise of what God has already done and is doing presently in our hearts and will one day complete. So we are going to say together, once again, the theme of our series, because we've got to say this over and over in our minds, we've got to preach this to us every day, to ourselves every day, so let's say it together, um, let's not put it up there, let's, let's say our main theme of our series, alright, we did a, good, you did a good job last week, let's say it again, ready? That's, that's right, only God can rescue and redeem. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this part of our worship service, and this is indeed an act of our worship, to gather around your word, Lord, with hearts of worship, to hold our hands out and to say, Lord, would you show us Christ in the pages of your word? Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, would convict us of sin, would encourage us with the hope of the good news of what Jesus has done for us, and spur us on to mission for Him. Lord, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, the places that You have put us strategically to be ambassadors for Your kingdom, Lord, would you show us who you are and what you have provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 4, we're really dividing chapter 4 into two parts. We're going to look at the first half today and the second half next week. The first half of chapter 4, in asking this question, will you believe, will I believe, this morning, it can divide into verses 1 to 17, 
as being the first part of this chapter, and then verses 18 to 31 as the second half of this chapter. And verses 1 to 17 present us this morning in answering the question, will we believe, we have to first of all look in these first 17 verses at hindrances to belief. So if we are going to seek to place our trust, our everyday trust on on God through His sufficiency that He's given us in Christ, we have to be aware of the dangers or the hindrances to belief. And what we are going to see as we get into chapter 4 is that Moses is not done yet with his doubts and his lack of faith. Moses is not done arguing with God concerning this call. He still has to get some more out of his system. Aren't we glad this morning that God is patient with us, that we have to come to the end of ourselves uh, before we finally give in to God, and he, he is working in our hearts to bring us to that moment, to get out of our system all of our feelings of self-sufficiency? We're going to see a perfect example of this. In verses 1 to 9, we see Moses having an unhealthy focus on others. In fact, this is Moses' now third objection to the call of God on his life. Again, by way of review, uh, objection number 1, verse 11, but Moses said to God in chapter 3 of verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God answers him. But then doubt number 2, verse 13 of chapter 3. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? See, this is more than just a question of curiosity. This is a question of doubt. And now we have a third objection from Moses. Here at the beginning of chapter 4, let's look at Moses' excuse in verse 1. Then Moses answered. So after all of these promises that bring us to the end of chapter 3, Moses answers, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Here, his his excuse now has moved from himself to, yeah, but how are people going to respond? How are people going to, in essence, view me? Because as we're going to see, an unhealthy focus on others is really an unhealthy focus on ourselves, our own pride. You see, the question, the doubt here is, What if the people say the Lord did not appear to you? Let me ask you, is he worried about their rejection of God or is he worried about their rejection of himself? So he's saying, okay, I'm going to go before all of the elders of Israel and I'm going to tell them what you told me and guess what? They're going to say, you are a liar. They're not going to say that the God of the Hebrews is not real. He's not legitimate. No, they're, gonna, they're in essence going to reject me. That is the heart of his belief. Listen, unbelief stems ultimately not from a lack of confidence in self, but from a lack of confidence in God. Because the very fact that we Uh, that Moses seems insecure in himself and says, well, what if they reject me in essence? What he is ultimately saying is, God, I do not have the faith that you will do what you said. Listen, if you are always thinking about what others think of you, and listen, I struggle with this just like the next guy. You know what we have to keep reminding ourselves of? that it is not because I am so humble that I'm concerned about 
all of these thoughts and opinions and responses and reactions to things. It is because my heart is full of pride. And it is because I am not willing to place my life before God and say, God, you deal with the details. I am going to follow you. And what is also interesting just from this very first verse of Scripture, what he is saying in this fear of rejection is, what if these people are an unbelieving people? What if they don't believe? And therefore they reject me. And guess what? Was this fear legitimate? Well, we see as we look later on in the book in chapter 5, verse 21, when things don't go the Israelites' way, they look at Moses and say, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in our hand to kill us. So it's not even that Moses' fears are ungrounded. Listen, 90% of the fears that we have, they could happen. They could. So the issue isn't, is my fear in life legitimate? It is, is my fear in life legitimate as a Christian? As one who claims I place my confidence in God? Because this was a legitimate fear, but it was illegitimate in the sense that he was doubting the very promises of God. Well, Moses, as he gives his third rejection, God also gives a third response. And we see this response in verses 2 to 9. We first of all see a response concerning a staff. The Lord said to him, and I love how the Lord's responses are without rebuke. He is patient with Moses. The Lord said to him, what is it in your hand? And he said, a staff. I mean, don't you get the idea here of, of a father talking to a child? You know, um, now, did you take the cookie? No. What's in your hand? Well, it's a cookie. I don't know how it got there. <laughs> but you, you see how God, in his patience, in his grace, in his forbearance with us, talks kindly. He does not belittle us, but he says, what is in your hand? He says, it's a staff. What is a staff? It's an ordinary object. But as we continue our series through Exodus, we are going to see that this very staff that God has in his hand, I mean, this, or that Moses has in his hand, this is paving the way for something great. Because the staff would prove to be a direct confrontation with Pharaoh. In fact, in verse 17 of chapter, of chapter 4 here, the staff, uh, God says, you shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Later on, it's, uh, the staff is referred to in verse 20, at the end of verse 20, this is not just Moses' staff, this is the staff of God. This is the staff with which God is going to do wonders. An ordinary object, but yet this is a direct confrontation. I love what one commentator says. It'll be on the overhead for you. The use of a rod or a staff is a, deliberative, a deliberate attack on the Egyptian culture and belief. Why? Because the Egyptians held that a staff was a symbol of authority, leadership, and power. It is no coincidence that God pinpoints his, the, the staff of Moses that I am going to use that as a vehicle to accomplish my purposes. Just as I am going to use you, Moses, Listen, the way God works in our lives is He works through His Word, He works through His people, and He works circumstantially in our lives to reveal His declared will to us and His specific will to us. And we see that with this staff, He gives Moses an answer to his question, what if they don't believe? He gives them a divine sign in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, 
He take this staff, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. I mean, this is really, it's a humorous picture. Uh, Moses, he flees from this snake. How many of you like snakes? Does anybody? Timmy does? As long as they're in the uh, glass cage, right? A few of you like snakes. This was more than just, first of all, a fear of snakes. When we place this individual story in the context of the scriptures, Moses flees from this snake. Because as Genesis 3.15 says, there is now conflict between the seed of the snake, the seed of the serpent, and the promised seed of God. And this is a picture of this battle that is going on between God's purposes, God's people, and the plans of Satan that he is orchestrating through Pharaoh. And Moses in and of himself is ill-equipped to carry out the mission. Listen, the greatest assurance in your life is if God is calling you to do something that you cannot do because God is greater than ourselves. Listen, without Christ, we are able to do what? What does John 15 say? Nothing. Moses is helpless in the confrontation between himself and this snake. But with God, all things are possible. In fact, we read then in verse 4, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Man, I would be out of there. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. Listen, this is a sign that God is greater than anything that Pharaoh or Satan could possibly throw. This snake is also very important that the snake is again an affront to Egypt. On the overhead, you have a, a, uh, a, should have a picture of an Egyptian crown with the snake, the cobra, with, with its whatever those side things are called flared out. <laughs> Listen to this description of the crown. It says, the kings of Egypt wore crowns ador- adored Adorned with the, and I probably I'm not going to say this right, the Urias, which means a cobra with a raised hood threatening Egypt's enemies. The cobra crown was also associated with the sun god, Re, or Ra, who was called the living king, who when, when united with another god, Amon, was the most powerful deity in Egypt. Then this part's on the overhead for you. Victory over the serpent was therefore a comprehensive motif or theme for challenging and overthrowing the central realities of Egyptian religion and sovereignty. And thus by this sign, Egypt's power, whether divine or royal, is shown to be under the Lord's sovereign sway. You see, there would be no gods in Egypt that would be greater than the one true God. Are you living this morning a defeated life? Not only because of your lack of faith, but specifically your lack of faith in the power, the sufficiency of your God. God commands Moses to simply stretch out his hand. Which, by the way, is the same exact word that is used in Exodus 3.20 of what God will do. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. God is giving promises all over the place here to Moses. Are his eyes open enough to see them and to heed them? But if one assurance again was not enough, God then gives a second sign. This is dealing with leprosy in verses 6 to 8. Now I did look at some, find some images online, but I figured I wouldn't show those to you. They were pretty gross. 
But then look at next what God does with Moses. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now God gives a picture of a physical attack. This word leprosy is not what we would think of as, as current day leprosy, otherwise known as, as Hansen's disease. It's, it's a broad term of many different types of skin diseases would fall under this category. But he is struck with leprosy and just like the snake was a kind of a foreshadowing of the confrontation in Pharaoh's court of the snakes. And, you're, and we're going to read about this when, when the rod is turned into a snake and then the magicians turn their rods into snakes and, and, and the, the, the rod of God devours, eats the court's snakes. This very likely is also a picture of what God will do in Egypt because we remember the plague of boils, do we not? And God will strike the Egyptians just as He has struck Moses' hand. And then look at verse 7. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So He put His hand back inside His cloak. When He took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of His flesh. Listen, it is God who would cause to strike down and to heal. It is God who has power over all things. What does verse 8 say? If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. But if that isn't enough, God in His graciousness, in His mercy, and His condescension to us, He gives yet another sign in verse 9. And this is dealing with the Nile River. Again, foreshadowing what God will do in Egypt. Verse 9, If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So again, this is a picture of a divine affront on the Egyptian gods because they actually worship the Nile River. In fact, well, as one person makes note, the Nile was actually considered the life force of the people. In fact, you see a satellite image of the Nile River, that snake-looking river, and you can see how vital that river is as you see desert all around the river. And here you see this huge Nile River. If you look up and... That was a flashback from years ago when we had the screen up there. <laughs> if you look at the, at the top part of the Nile River, you see that one area where it's darker? That is the, the, the Nile Delta where vegetation would grow as a result of the Nile River itself. Amidst all of that desert, you have such growth in that Nile Delta. The Nile was worshipped because certainly the gods have produced this growth in the midst of the desert. You see from this satellite picture just how crucial the Nile River really is. Let me just read to you what one individual says concerning the Nile. The Nile was considered to be the lifeblood of Egypt. From the Nile, creation was believed to have sprouted. And it was the Nile that maintained and sustained life in Egypt. In fact, one Greek historian, Herodotus, even called Egypt, quote, the gift of the Nile. So the fact that God could transform the Nile water into blood again reflects His sovereignty and power over the life giver or so-called life giver of Egypt. We see again 
that God directly, what are, what's the purpose of these three signs? Okay, Moses questions God. He doubts God about the people's belief. And he says, here's your answer to show the people, should your greatest fear come true that they don't believe you. But guess what? Chapter 4 doesn't end yet. Maybe you're looking at your time saying, I wish it would. <laughs> it doesn't end yet. Can, can we put something in our mind that, that we have to remind ourselves all the time? The source, again, of our unbelief is not our circumstances, it is our heart. We see this all throughout the book of Exodus. What happens? God answers the doubt. Then what happens? Because the heart is not transformed, the heart is not changed, a new doubt arises to take the place of the first doubt. So God provides water in the wilderness, God provides quail, God provides manna, and then what happens? They leave town, they go to the next section of the desert, there's no water, there's no food. What happens? They don't say, hey, God actually delivered us from the whole army of Egypt attacking us and and parted the waters, and then he gave us food, and then he gave us water, so now we're in need again, so why don't we trust him? No. Because the root issue of our unbelief is the heart. That is why God does not just take away trials from us. Because if he did, the heart would remain unchanged. And guess what? There would be a new trial to face us. And we are no more ready for it than the first one. So as God clearly answers Moses' excuse, what if the people don't believe me? On the heels of the third objection comes a fourth. This is now what he blames as a focus on others. We see in verses 10 to 17, ultimately what's at the heart, a focus of self. Moses has another excuse in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Okay, okay, okay. Well, the people, okay, maybe they will believe me. I I now have an arsenal of three. I mean, you can't refute these signs. I have those in my arsenal now. I guess I should say in my hand with the staff. But ah, I just thought of a new doubt. I will not be able to adequately get that message across even if the people will believe. They really need it to be told better in order to deliver those signs, to explain what God said, So, yeah, they're going to believe, but now the problem is with the messenger. His excuse is that he could not speak well. And one can get the idea, many people speculate as to what is meant here uh, in the Septuagint, which is the, the, it's the Greek translation of the, of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. It reads, I am weak voiced and slow of tongue. And many people say that he possibly had a type of speech impediment from the description with which he describes himself. Uh, We don't know that the point of the story is not to, to tell us what is his problem. The point is to show us that he was not looking to his God, he was looking to himself. In fact, to make this even more dramatic... He not only says, I'm not eloquent, but man, this has never been the case. God, obviously you haven't been watching me flub up. He emphasizes this has not been the case in the past, nor will it be until now. In fact, if you read this literally uh, from the original languages, it doesn't even make sense into our minds. It's kind of a figure of speech. It says, I've been ineloquent neither from... I haven't been able to speak well neither from yesterday nor from three days ago nor since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, God, I am not your man. 
this is totally out of my league. This has never been a good thing for me. And so many times we place excuses before God that God, you just don't know me. God, I am so shy, I'm so bashful, and I know that you have called me to biblical community with my brothers and sisters in Christ, but yet, you know, I'm a private person, I, I, I'm not good with people, I'm kinda, I kind of have a shell, so God, I know that's an ideal, but man, that's just not for me. You know, God, I know you want me to unite with this local body, you want me to serve you, you want me to get out of my comfort zone, but God, I've never been good at that. Not from yesterday or three days ago, even until now. Never. What is it that you feel is so far out of your comfort zone that will certainly, as God is kind of prodding me, certainly he's not calling me to this or to that. God desires to reveal himself to you in the midst of your inadequacies. So Moses makes this excuse. And then he says in verse 10, um, basically his heart attitude is, I cannot do the job, therefore pick someone else. And then we see another Response by God in verses 11 and 12. Then, again, the patience of the Lord, it leads men to repentance. Romans 2.4 says. It says, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Not just your mouth, Moses. I'm not just talking about your impediment or whatever's going on. But who has made mankind's mouth? You see, this is bigger than just him. God is on, on mission not just to, to redeem Israel, but ultimately to redeem the whole world through the seed of Israel, which is Jesus Christ. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? And get the power of this question. Is it not I, the Lord, Yahweh, the very one in chapter 3, I revealed myself to you. I am Yahweh. I am the saving God. The one who acts and fulfills His promises. The one who is faithful to His covenants. You see, God's response in verse 11, if we're to summarize this, is it's not about, it's not about you, Moses. It is about me. Listen, we are all self-centered. As Paul Tripp says, the DNA of sin is selfishness. And whether it's I don't want to listen to the authority God's placed over my life, whether that's a parent, whether that's a boss, uh, whether that's God Himself, the, 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 the feeling that I'm sufficient in and of myself, I don't need God telling me what to do, nor do I need His help in my life, all of those things find their root in selfishness. You see, what we have in verse 11, as one notes, it's, it's a battle of the eyes. A battle of the eyes. I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech. In verse 11, God says, is it not I, the Lord? Moses feels his eyes are inadequate for the task. Yahweh responds by saying that it is his eye that is to be reckoned with. So which eye is going to win? And then in verse 12, what does God say? Now therefore, go. This is a command. Go. And now where's the promise? I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You see, he doesn't first try to sugarcoat things for Moses and say, Oh Moses, I know that you struggle. I know don't worry. No, he says, you respond in faith. Go. I'm not even going to acknowledge the lame excuse you just gave me until he says 
No, you go. And by the way, that excuse you gave me, that one that you, you know in your heart doesn't hold any weight, I'm going to be with you. Because God remembers that we're but dust. He knows that we are frail. And while His plans and purposes do not change, again, He meets us where we are at and He does not leave us there, but He says, I will be with you. But you've got to be going. Again, God promises His presence and His power just as He did in chapter 3, verse 12. But now we have in this excuse not just a single response from Moses and a single response from God. He, imagine the slap in the face. God has just said, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be with your mouth. I'm going to teach you the very words to say. And, and Moses slaps God in the face, so to speak, in verse 13. But he said, and now he gets to the heart of the matter. Here it is. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Every answer in the world would not suffice in Moses' heart at this moment. This is a strong request. In fact, uh, you, you don't notice this in English, but there's, there's two, um, there's two uh, words in the text that, that denote a, a question here. And Moses is passively rejecting God's call. At best, at best here, he is saying, when you look at the, 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 the words that are used, if I got to do it, I'll do it. But please, if there's anyone else that could possibly do this, send them. And then in verse 14, it is the only instance in all of chapter 3 and chapter 4 that you see the righteous anger of God. Now God responds once again. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. It's kind of, again, a figure of speech um, in the Hebrew. It literally reads, Yahweh's nose burned. Have you ever been really upset about something and your nostrils kind of flare? It's kind of the picture you get. The anger of the Lord was kindled. But yet here's the beautiful part. Even though the anger of the Lord was kindled, God's response was one of grace. Undeserved favor. Does God act upon this righteous anger? You see, the anger was ultimately in the fact that Moses was disobedient to the call because he did not believe in God. Listen, so many times we say in our lives that we, we are having a righteous anger. Uh-uh. Don't be over-spiritual. There are probably very few times we have a righteous anger as this in our lives. Our righteous anger, when we're angry in a righteous way, it is because God is being undercut. And man, our anger is usually because we are being undercut. And in the midst of God's anger, what a picture of the gospel. God does not unleash His anger on His person, Moses, on His people. God relegates that anger to Someone, in this case, something else, his, his anger, his fury on the sin of Egypt, on the, lam the lambs that were slayed, ultimately on Christ, so that even in the midst of that anger, it was satisfied through Jesus, and we are recipients of grace. Amen? 
Because he, got, he just slaps God in the face and God says, I am going to give you something that you do not deserve, Moses. I'm going to give you your brother Aaron to comfort you. He can speak well. But in the midst of God's grace, notice the continuity to God's plan. It does not change. Verse 15 says, You shall speak to him, to Aaron, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. In other words, God doesn't say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and answer your request to send someone else, and I'm going to just work through Aaron. No. God says, my promise is still the same. I am going to guide your mouth. You don't really need Aaron, but in my grace, I am going to give you this, and I'm still going to be with your mouth, but I'm also going to be with his too. Listen, what we see in verse 14, in verse 15, is God's grace put up against the mirror an unwilling prophet of the Lord versus a greater Moses, a greater prophet, Jesus, who says, I am willing to do your will. And then in verse 16, we continue. It says, He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be with your mouth and you shall be as God to him. You see, God says here that they are going to represent him to the pagan Pharaoh. So he has the idea, literally, I will be to you, I, he will be, Aaron will be to you like a mouth, and you will be to him like a God. And what, what, uh, what God means here when He says this in verse 16 is that in Egyptian culture, in, in Near Eastern prophecy, there would be an individual that would speak for the God. And before the, the Egyptians' minds who worshipped all sorts of gods Moses, because God was working through him, would literally be seen as a God to Pharaoh and the people. And Moses, or Aaron would be seen as his prophet speaking the declarations that Yahweh had given Moses. And in verse 17, he says, And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Again, we note the importance of this staff. It was with the staff that God would perform, would carry out His signs. God equips Moses. He calls him to the task. Moses doubts. Yet God reaches out in grace. God's plan is not altered because of the hardness of his heart. But God knows He is sending someone greater. Moses will carry out as an imperfect prophet the perfect plan of God until the climactic point of God's plan when He sends the perfect prophet. Listen, let's take heart this morning that we are weak vessels. We are doubtful people we all struggle with these hindrances to unbelief. But we have one who was sent before us who did perfectly what we could never do. And we now walk in the completed obedience and sacrifice of Jesus. That as we fail, we get back up reclaiming His sufficiency for our lives and we seek to follow God. Is that your heart this morning? Or are you so stuck on self that you've lost sight of your Savior? Let's pray. 
Lord, as we close this morning, our time is done. Lord, we are a people that are so prone to unbelief. Lord, that is our bent. Lord, you know myself, you know each person here. That God, so many times the things that we desire to do, we do not do. The sufficiency that we claim with our mouth, we do not believe with our hearts. So Lord, I pray that you would grip our hearts with the good news that as much as Moses was such a wonderful example, even amidst his disbelief of of following you, God, that we ultimately look to the greatest prophet, Jesus, who perfectly acted in obedience, who was willing to come not just to deliver Israel, but to deliver every nation, tribe, and tongue from the slavery to sin. May we walk as followers in the example of Christ. May we claim for our sufficiency, not the opinions of others, whether they will believe, whether they will accept us, not in our own abilities and whether we are of quick mind or quick thought, but in you, the one who is sending us. Would we be obedient with the call that you have placed upon our lives as your ambassadors and the specific calls that you have given us with our children, with our spouse, uh, with our friends, our coworkers, all of those things? Would we answer the call? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.